The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Thanks for coming, everybody. In a way, it's uh, it's an incredible privilege that we have time to look at our minds. I mean, when you think about the great scope of history, all the places, times, human beings have been uh, busy in a way, you know, not necessarily with important things, but nonetheless busy, busy doing, busy running, busy hiding, busy basically surviving the in Buddhism, we talk about the vicissitudes of life, gain and loss, pain, very real pain, pleasure, at least in moments, fame, disrepute, praise and blame. Right? And these movements, these eight worldly winds can be very oppressive for some people in moments and very privileged for other people in other moments. And all of it is uncertain. It keeps moving. It never is just going to be one way for any of us. And it keeps us really busy. And one of the expressions of that busyness is we we put off. Even those of us who have a sense of the importance of using the mind to look at the mind, to study the mind, to be actually curious about the nature of the mind, it's very easy to put it off because we're busy doing life and surviving and fitting in and being loved and getting even with those we don't love. And it takes time to be distracted. I don't know if you realize how much energy it takes to sort of find TV shows that are going to be good enough to distract us <laughs> or books or news articles or things to gossip about, you know. So even the so-called, you know, relatively or very unhealthy things take time, and it's exhausting, let alone the good stuff. So the fact that we can gather like we have tonight and sit in a room that's relatively conducive, you know, relatively safe, maybe more safe for some than for others, Uh, relatively safe, hopefully, and relatively quiet and conducive to this basic spiritual move, not the only spiritual move, but one of the basic ones, sitting relatively still in a relatively quiet space with, you know, a limited number of distractions. We're not in the middle of a shopping mall or in the middle of conversation, right? We're hearing a lot of words. And we're using this capacity of our mind to see clearly, to be stable and open, to observe the mind. Well, what is this mind? This it's kind of has two qualities that stand out, right? And you can use your actual experience of mind as I'm talking now in this particular place in the talk. Like, what is, you know, that question, what is the mind? And that's a relevant question. And not what is it 
like what's a nifty conceptual definition of mind, but more like if I'm going to, in observing the mind, and I'm going to put that direct observation into words, do my best to articulate the direct observation of the mind, what might I say about it that might resonate with other people? So I'm talking about the mind uh, more universally, not what's specific to my mind. Like I might think about the beet and spinach salad I had for lunch, right? But that image, that mental image, that thought, I ate a beet and spinach salad for lunch, that's specific. But that that thought moved through the mind, was there and then was gone, that the nature of that flow, one thought after another, that's universal. That's not specific to my mind. That kind of movement, one thought after another, the uh, you could say the ephemeral nature of thoughts, that's something that we'd probably all, if we looked with enough stability, we'd all see something like that same thing, that movement of thought. So just using the mind to look at the mind, that relatively stable, curious, non-judging, present moment awareness. There is mind. So one of the first things, and maybe the in the first moment, one of the things you might notice is it's kind of like uh, open space. Because initially, when we ask a question like, like, what is mind? It's like everything goes quiet. Did you notice that? Right. So then what we tend to notice in those first moments is, it's like there's just this open space and nothing's happening in the mind right now. Just an open space. Here's another interesting question just to check in your own direct experience. What is here for you as an experience? What is here that's not mind? What's this ex- what in this experience would you say, oh, that's not mind? Is there anything? It's kind of it's don't don't assume that it, there's an answer to that question or there there are answers, <laughs> maybe some better than others, who knows, but probably you know kind of depends on the angle I mean in a way, this is all mind because even the sound of me unscrewing the water bottle or the for me the drinking and tasting and swallowing that physicality of the swallowing. All that is known here and now in the mind. So there's these two basic qualities of mind. One is more like open space, the empty, open space. And then there's all this stuff happening in that space, like the sound of the water bottle opening or me feeling the weight of lifting the bottle or the self-consciousness of I have a water bottle to drink from. Maybe you're thirsty too. Right? So all that mental and physical activity, seeing, hearing, touching, thinking, emoting. So there's all that movement. And that movement has the nature just to sort of be very light. Even 
seemingly solid, painful sensations in the body, when you just observe them in a non-confused way, non-judgmental or aversive way, you're just looking at the throbbing of some unpleasant sensation, you'll see that it's much more ephemeral than the mind might casually think pain is, painful sensations are. And so it really depends, like, this is important when we understand the mind because it really helps us know how to relate to life. A lot of people might think, well, this is a lot about nothing, right? Because I'm in debt or, you know, I have some other kind of financial insecurity or my long-time relationship is seemingly falling apart and I don't know if I can handle living with this person anymore or my dog has diarrhea or you know, whatever it might be. I mean, it's really almost infinite the different ways our heart is broken. Hurts way down, delighted, excited, you know, the different movements. So why take the mind to look at the mind? So what if it's like space, And then there's all this ephemeral movement. How does that help me with my debt or with my the uncertainty in my life? Some of you maybe were at Joseph Goldstein's talk yesterday afternoon at Hamlin University. Uh, A bunch of us were there. I think about 600 of us celebrating Common Ground's 25th anniversary. And we had another powerful, powerful talk this morning. Both will be up online. This morning was Reverend Angel. gave an earth-moving talk. But one of the uh, things that Joseph mentioned yesterday was this sutta, this story from the discourses. The Buddha is basically relating a story to his students that in the same way he's giving the example, sort of a metaphorical example of somebody having their, it's pretty graphic, it's my warning. Joseph looked at me before telling the story last yesterday. Should I tell the story? (laughs) But uh, it's meant to be graphic, right? To sort of take it to the nth degree. Even if somebody were sawing off your limbs, right? Let me just rephrase, not exactly how the Buddha phrased it. Would it help you if someone were to be sawing off your limbs, right? Would it help to get angry, to be hateful? Would it add value in the moment? I mean, it's totally understandable that the mind would default to anger. And that's sort of, you know, outrageous, terrible situation. But it's pretty clear, you know, as a abstraction for us right now, that yeah, that's right. Anger is not gonna help. It's not gonna make me feel better. <clears throat> and it's probably if somebody's willing to saw off our limbs, me being angry at them is probably not gonna make much of a dent. Who knows, but, you know, 
not really adding value to the moment. What it is actually doing, we can see, is it's just amplifying what is already obviously a terrible situation. And so the Buddhist point was, you know, if you're <clears throat> if you want to sort of follow the path that I've followed and have the results that I've had in my practice in my life in developing my heart, then you have to appreciate, you have to develop this appreciation that hatred doesn't help. Conceptually, we can justify hate. There's a lot of ways, moments, we can justify, if we want to, throwing people out of our hearts. There are a lot of good reasons. Maybe some of you have more people and better reasons to throw people out of your heart than other people. But we all have some people and some evidence or whatever, facts, lived experience, that allows us to justify, you know, to build a case as if we were a lawyer, to build a case why I deserve to hate someone or why they deserve my hatred. They deserve to have me throw them out of my heart to close my heart. I don't care if they're a conditioned human being. I don't care if they're imprisoned by their own ignorance or their own delusion or their own mean-spiritedness. I don't care if there are causes and conditions that led them, that lead them to being unwise and unskillful and causing harm. I choose just to hate them and to throw them out of my heart. It it seems to make sense when we're hurting and when we're overwhelmed. And so when we study the mind, you know, and we see the space-like nature of the mind and we see the movement of the mind, we're seeing things a little bit more clearly, a little bit more as they actually are, And then we discover something in that more intimate space, observing the mind and body, basically, observing the heart, mind, and body, observing the way it is right here in our lived experience, taking responsibility for this life right here, seeing if in being more intimate and real and learning something about this, what's here and now, this body, heart, mind, to see if it changes like everything else, all of our relationships, how to relate to financial insecurity, how to relate to relationships problems, how to relate to the very real injustice sometimes we wake up to, we see and feel around us, touched not by our our own suffering, but those, the suffering of those around us, which seems endless, you know. It's like, this is sort of an aside, but has there ever been a moment in our life where we sort of like, oh, things are going really well in my life and around me, and I can can live It's like we want to be in this place where I don't have to 
feel burdened by life, the suffering in life, the meanness in life, the injustice in life. But it's never that way, is it? There's always been a lot of suffering. Not necessarily immediate, you know, in the 20-foot diameter of what we can see and hear, you know, in the room that we're in. But we know better, you know. Right now, there are who knows how many thousands of women giving birth. Seems like a pretty challenging thing. You know, and that's just one thing, you know. And there are those people getting their chemo drip. And there are those people, you know, being oppressed because of something silly on the surface of it, you know, like the skin tone or their cultural background or their how they understand gender for themselves. And any number of other sort of things that are going on. And so that that sense of wanting a safe spot, you know, this is really what drives distraction. It's like we don't we feel like exposure is too much. So that's why we gravitate towards living in certain places, hanging around with certain people, using certain distractions, certain programs or media. We want to get in these bubbles which seem like a world where I don't, my heart isn't being traumatized by very real suffering. Because it seems like we don't know what to do with suffering. This is another great value to use the mind to study the mind. Because we learn about how to handle that exposure, how to handle that uncertainty. We learn how to be intimate with the way it is. It's really the opposite of running. And one of the ways we run but we don't realize we're running is we think about things. And because it often hurts, like when we're worrying or planning or judging others, raging, whatever we might do, that sort of... And it can seem like I'm a real activist because I'm thinking about this terrible thing in the world, thinking about how stupid the people in power are, thinking about how we need to rise up. And and we may think that the thinking is somehow functional or helpful. or. But when we use the mind to study the mind, we see that identification for what it is. Immediately in that moment when the mind is identified with that sort of self-righteous thinking, what it is is a squeeze in the heart. And the other thing we observe is when there's a squeeze on the heart, what does the heart want? It wants a break. So it makes it more susceptible to distraction. We basically become an addict for distraction. Because when we're squeezing, when we're living in ways, thinking in ways, relating to our experience in ways that creates a psychic burden, then we're really dependent on escape, whatever it is. You know, it's, we all have our top five, top ten ways of disappearing, getting into our little bubbles, whatever it might be. Some of our habits are relatively wholesome, like we become addicted to exercise. Now, exercise generally is really good, 
but to sort of use it obsessively to disappear, as long as we have to run from life, there's suffering. Even with something relatively wholesome, reading good books, or cleaning your kitchen. (laughs) Now, I'm all for cleaning the kitchen, and I used to be for reading good books. I still do some. (laughs) I wish I were into exercising (laughs) more, right? But... But I don't want any of those relatively wholesome activities to be there in my life because I don't know how to be in an uncertain world or I don't know how to be proximate to joy and suffering, which is just the very nature, you know, this movement of joy. Sometimes in the Buddhist tradition we talk about the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So instead of thinking, thinking that we'll get the answer, like how to be a human being, how to have a partner, how to care about the world, how to be a good citizen of the world, it's not something that we can figure out through thinking. We can practice being real. We can practice being kind. We can practice being unafraid with our own experience of the heart and the mind and the body right here. That we can do. And that will naturally carry over into every single relationship, every single moment of relating. Because how I'm relating right now, even now, not just like, oh, later after the talk, but even right now, how we're in the body. Are we in the body? Are we relating that there is a body? You know, and there's to whatever whatever the heart is like now for each of us, you know, broken hearted, maybe it's warm and open, maybe it's feeling really tenderized, maybe it's feeling numb and you know, like nothing's there. But how will we the interesting thing is, are we including that experience? Are we willing to be close and to acknowledge, oh yeah, this is what it's like to be embodied right now. This is what it's like to have a sensitive heart that over this lifetime has felt a lot, this heart. And a lot of what this heart has felt, I didn't really want to be there. So part of what I'm feeling when I feel the heart is the enormity of the habit of not wanting to feel what the heart feels, right? Sort of the suppressive and repressive tendencies that we have because our heart is always feeling otherwise. And we have the idea that it's hard to feel what the heart feels. So then we get into these patterns of, well, then I'm not going to feel it. So what can I use to not feel? You know, What distraction can I take advantage of? And I'll cling to that. I'll identify with that activity, that thought, that whatever. So I'm not aware of the feeling that's here. And that's a feeling too. Like numbness or disconnection, that's its own kind of wormy, strange feeling, the feeling of being not here or not connected with our own life. 
Yeah, and so I'll just go back to what I said at the beginning before opening it up for discussion. You know, it's it's really hard for us in our busy lives to somehow have faith that starting again, you know, that we do a lot of this, like even in a 30-minute sit, 35-minute sit like we had tonight, how many times did we start over? The mind literally is gone, lost in thought, and then there's nothing you can do then. And then it, some recognition that, oh yeah, I'm lost in thought, right? So then you're not lost in thought when you have that recognition. And then that willingness to stay with the recognition, oh yeah, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. The feeling of embodiment, being in a body, the recognition there is a mind. There is a mind. It's the mind, it's the sensitive mind that feels the body, right? Or the sensitive heart that feels the body. And that mind, the mind, this moment, it's like space and it's like movement. There's stuff happening in the space and both, that's what this is. And that is such a, that, experience of anybody's moment, right? It's not specific to me or to particular people, but any moment we look, at least as many moments as I've looked, they are characterized by that sense of the space of the present moment and the activity that's coming and going in that space, being known when the mind's not distracted, still happening even when the mind's distracted, I'm guessing, right? Things coming and going, thoughts, sensations, sights, sounds. And when we're, when we study it, willing to be intimate with it, what does it teach? Well, it teaches us how to be intimate. It teaches us how to release into the truth of our lives. Like, it's like we can't put it into words, like, oh, this is what I do with suffering, or this is what I do with joy. And it's like you, you could put it in a self-help book. Like we, we have the potential with our own moment, you know, and if we miss this moment, that's okay, because there's going to be another moment, and another moment, and another moment. So it's so nice that, like, it doesn't matter when we have been distracted for 10 minutes, lost in some obsessive thought, and we come to. It's like, okay, in this moment, mind and activity. Right? There's this open space, empty space of the mind of knowing the present moment and things being known, things coming and going. And we, we start over. It's sort of a movement at that point if there's some stability, it's really an act of faith at that point. Like, can this be okay? This simple way of being, this way of being intimate, allowing life, allowing everything, the space of the present moment and all the activity coming going in that space, the thoughts, the emotions, even the activity, the doing this, the doing that, because it this isn't specific to city meditation. It's all day long. Can life be trusted? Can Mark 
you know, what we call me, be trusted to say and do or not say and not do whatever I'm doing or not doing. And even if we have sort of different layers of parental energy observing what we're doing and judging what we're doing, you know, can all that be allowed? Can the injustice and the beauty be allowed in this moment? Or do I have to disconnect or pretend it isn't the way that it is? Or can I let my response come from being open and clear and acknowledging that, you know what, it is this way right now. It's a mess, or it's beautiful, or it's everything in between. And then whoever we're going to be, it will arise out of that space. So I would call that, I think we could call that space humility, right? Because it's, in a way, the opposite of humility is when the mind is caught up in some kind of mental proliferation, identified with some kind of thought or idea or concept, right? So one of the characteristics of using the mind to study the mind, oh yeah, there's this space of the present moment, and I know there's space because there's things coming and going, and they're coming and going, and I'll call that the space of the present moment. You can call it whatever you want. And one of the things by opening to that, by being curious about that, the mind has to let go of its ground. The only ground the mind can ever have is when it's identified with its thoughts about things. That's why that first stage of awakening and traditions, Buddhist traditions, is called entering the stream or stream entry. Because metaphorically, but you know, it has the insight process seems to have this kind of direct, visceral almost experience of going from a sense of ground, the sense of certainty, a sense of placement, and kind of we got our conceptual map that seems to explain my life and what's happening to me, and it's in this moment working well enough that feels appropriate for me to cling to it, and then that clinging to that idea, those ideas of me and mine and you and that, this, creates a semblance of ground. And then I get interested in using the mind to study the mind, and I have to, the mind in a sense has to make a choice. It can continue to cling, identify with the thoughts, the way it's thinking, defining, explaining things, or it can actually open or be curious or see clearly, oh yeah, it's like this, the space, empty space of here and now, sensations coming and going, thoughts, sounds, sight, seeing rather, just this activity, here and now, being known. And it's not like there aren't thoughts here, but thoughts aren't sticky. The mind isn't using thought identifying with thought, the picture thoughts construct to create a sense of ground for the ego. It's just practicing not being needy, 
It's cultivating a taste for things as they are. Wide open space, things coming and going in that space. A flow, endless flow, no beginning or end. We're learning to be in that space. And then it's so interesting because then when we're 10 minutes later, you know, let's say we do that and sit and we're interacting, it's a challenging interaction or something difficult happens to us, we get hurt or find out something that hurts. We have a way, oh yeah, I can do the same thing. I can be aware of the wide open, empty space of the present moment and that this is one of those things that come and go that flow of strong emotion. Maybe it's a strong pain, of painful uh, experience of disappointment or betrayal even, right? But now we're seeing it as this flow, a movement, not, a, not something that defines some, somebody, but a movement. It's really different. And the same thing when joy some beautiful, wholesome experience flows. It doesn't make sense to cling to it, to build something on it. A contemporary Buddhist teacher uh, asked this sort of reflection question, uh, which I'll change, but his question was something like, um, how would you live if you knew that happiness was just off the table table for you. Like, you're not going to be happy. So how would knowing that with certainty change the kind of choices you make in your life, what you do? So you're, we're not chasing happiness, then what would we do with our lives? No expectation that we're going to get someplace good. What would we do then? You see, it kind of frees, you up, frees us up. Don't have to pursue that. And another slightly maybe more nuanced way to ask that question is like, uh, if life, this embodied experience, you know, in our relative words, we'd say something like, I'm here, living here now, you know, in this place we call the United States of America, when things are like this and with a body that's like this and a mind that's been conditioned by culture and my upbringing and all that, like it's been conditioned. So we have this sense of time and place being conditioned. And we then we add to it like, what, what should we do here if we knew with certainty that our life wasn't in any way designed to make us happy? Like the world isn't here to make us happy. Because that's a personal story. Like, we, now, obvious examples with our partners. Because it's kind of this unwritten deal that, you know, we'll be partners if you make me happy. You're supposed to make me happy. And then it's kind of a business-like deal. And if you get good at making me happy, then I'm going to put out and try to make you happy. But even if I suspect 
you're not holding up your end of the deal. I'm cutting you off. I'm not, I'm not going to put any energy into making you happy if I suspect you're not putting energy into making me happy. And we just have that around food. I've really been noticing this over the last five years around food. Like just starting to catch it, just a more honest, clear, not obviously in every moment when I'm eating or thinking about food, but in more moments for sure, that I just, the, like observing the mind, the space of the mind, the activity. One of the activities is that thought, that very seductive thought, that the point of food is to be satisfied, is to make me happy. But food is sort of, it isn't there for any reason. And so what it does for me will be just, it's a construction. It can be just a very simple medicine like it takes the hunger away, brings some health, helps support the health in the body. Or I can make it this big deal. Sometimes we do. I mean, we just make food like so big, such a big deal. We took Joseph Goldstein to a nice restaurant last night, and uh, you know, and the it's just like everything about the food was like so thoughtful. The flavors, and wasn't you know sort of very small portions, but you know the look of the food and the taste of the food. But it's just, it's like, uh, I mean, in, there's nothing wrong with appreciating that thoughtfulness and the beauty and the complexity of the tastes. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it isn't much of anything. But it can become a big deal. You know, that the sort of more subtle, more refined, so-called beautiful experiences kind of misses the point, which is they're pretty ephemeral and expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It felt so nice. You know, there's the trouble going to popular places. They're noisy. It felt so nice to leave. (laughs) Like, oh. One of my pet peeves. But it's just like so many of those things that we imagine we like, we imagine are satisfying. If we're really honest, it's not much of anything. And it may actually, less than not much of anything, it might actually be like a burden. Like being the one who likes to do something. There's a funny story, maybe I'll end here then so we have time to hear from others. But one of the people I've been teaching with and just uh, one of my former, I mean, I used to study with Kamala Masters quite a bit when she would lead retreats back in the 90s here for the Minnesota community. Kamala Masters, just a wonderful, wise woman. And she uh, she's uh, Filipino and um, lived there for a while, even as a young adult, and raised four kids, mostly by herself. And she just has this sort of, earth, grandmotherly wisdom to her. And she's done a lot of practice and a lot of teaching at Insight Meditation Center in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, there's this beautiful three-mile, three-and-a-half-mile loop that a lot of the teachers and staff and people on retreat sometimes walk in the middle of the day. It's kind of a 
thing to do. It's the beautiful country roads. And there was this dog for years. It's, the dog has di- since died. But for years, it would uh, sit one of the houses uh, along this loop, had this dog. And then the dog would see people walking. It would nicely follow them. And then people would come the other way, and then it would follow them. And then, because there's like 100 people on retreat, and maybe 20, 30 staff people, not everyone would walk the loop every day, but, you know, more than a handful would. And uh, so there were a lot of people coming, and that dog would just keep, because the dog thought, you know, I'm happy following people or something. And Kamala, you know, just over the years observed this. And then finally one day, Kamala looked at the dog, you know, in her sort of powerful, grandmotherly, motherly, you know, don't mess with me way. Sit. <laughs> right? It's like, you do not have to walk ceaselessly, endlessly rather, you know, following people. You can just sit there. And when they come, you can see them. When they go, you see them go. And there's going to be more, <laughs> you know, you could just, because it was getting old too, you know, you could. Creeping along. <laughs> but I like that as a, that story as an example of that kind of resolve of how the mind seeks that ground. You know, we can tell the mind. It's, it's sort of like learning to live in that open, unformed space of the present moment. Like, well, we don't have a fixed idea of where we're going. Like, what a, even Sunday evening? is going to look like, or even the next moment, or even who I am right now. We don't need any attachment to any of those mental constructions. Do we really need a fixed idea that I'm Mark Nunberg at Common Ground Meditation? We don't need... It's not that the ideas flitting through the space of the mind is a problem, but being dependent on that idea to give some ground to some sense of me, that's neurotic and unnecessary. doesn't help. So this is that entering the stream or being open, being aware. It has the flavor of freedom, of not being fixed. But it's a cultivated taste where actually the whole path is cultivating a taste for freedom. We think, initially we always think, I'm interested in freedom. Because we do have immediately, most of us who you know would show up at a place like Common Ground, we have some direct experience of what it feels like when the heart's crunched, tight about this or that, right? That, we have some clarity. So we have the idea that like not having that would be good. And that's actually, there's some spiritual understanding in that. But that doesn't mean we really understand the heart that has been unbound, freed, from that experience of being bound. It's like it's like ungrounded or not ungrounded in kind of a spacey, you know, how we use that word, like I'm ungrounded, I'm a space cadet. But ungrounded like like humility ungrounded. And we at first we we feel like, oh no, this I need to know who I am, what I'm doing, where I'm going. Like life depends on me knowing my life. Even getting to the end of Sunday evening depends on there being not just a plan, but an identification with the plan, my plan, or 
I don't have a plan. And then identification with that idea. Or anything, any kind of fixed state, fixed quality of the mind. So we're cultivating for a taste of not that. Like, What's the mind without that? And that mind is right here when we realize what this is. And all we're doing is we're replacing holding, clinging, grasping, attachment with curiosity. It's really that simple. The established habit is to cling. And because things are fluid, the clinging has to reignite moment by moment by moment. But it's happening so persistently we don't notice it. Or we can be the only way to drop that habit is to cultivate a new habit, which we call mindful awareness or being open, being intimate, being curious, seeing things as they are. Oh, the space of the present moment, things being known, coming and going in that space of the present moment. And even if the mind, and it will because it's a big habit, gets fixed, then, but that's okay because then we just see it as something being known in the present moment. We don't get fixed by the fixedness. We just let it be another thing that's moving in the open space of the moment. Oh yeah, this is the mind being attached. This is the mind being neurotic. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you, your own reflections related to what I've said tonight from your practice, your life, what you're learning of course, any questions you have about what I've said tonight? Yeah, anybody like to start us off? What comes to mind? What questions come to mind or experiences? Yeah, Don. I'm Don. And uh, I'm wondering uh, what I've been doing lately, as I usually do, a uh, mindful walking meditation practice. And when I'm walking, I, I say something like this, uh, the mind is uh, aware of all the senses. The mind is knowing. And um, in that sense, it gives me a sense of uh, uh, present moment awareness, I think. Uh, but that's par- probably as far as I go. Um, and you said something about the streaming, so I don't know what's beyond that. But um, mm-hmm. I'm just giving my mind permission or saying, oh, the mind already knows how it is, so I just kind of trust that. Yeah. Yeah. And you could even slightly change the language to kind of, because even when we say the mind is knowing, the habit is going to be to presume the mind is more than it is, more substantial than it is. So you might even just try, well, knowing, there's knowing. There's knowing going on, right? Because that's the simple truth. Like if we were to be objective and describe, that's what we could say about this moment, right? Knowing is happening. Even like when you're comprehending some of the words you're hearing, you're knowing that. But you don't need that pronoun, I'm knowing that. You can Because really the subjective experience is that's being known or knowing is happening. And then the flow may... Uh, be supported, like the experience of freedom, like to highlight the experience of freedom, may not be so much directly looking for the freedom, but more 
useful, more functional might be, is there any holding? Just to drop that question, is there any friction? Is there any resistance? Is there any tightness? Is there any visceral squeeze in the body and mind? Right? Is there a suffering being in the room? You know? Because then if there is, then observe this, what appears to be a suffering being in that same way. Like there's this space and there's this visceral feeling that I'm calling a suffering being. Or there's this thought, I'm a suffering being. But whatever you're observing, it will have that nature to arise and pass, to flow on, to be ephemeral. So is it really a suffering being? It kind of begs the question, when you investigate, get curious about what the mind is calling suffering being, or tension, or stress. So that's the way... When we stabilize, like the first part of what Don was doing, you know, just recognizing the knowing, right? That really helps to stabilize present moment awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness. That's the first step, as you seem to kind of understand. And then the next is like, what should the, when that gets stabilized, what should the mind be curious about? Well, it should be curious about the one thing the mind is always interested in, suffering and the end of suffering, as the Buddha says, right? But not theoretically, not abstractly, but directly in experience. Like, is is the heart holding? Is the heart heavy? Is there a burden? And then what does that experience of suffering or being burdened, how does it appear when I look at it with intimacy as in terms of this open space of the present moment and something coming and going? So what is that in, that, in light of that? Well, even suffering is just what it is. It's not not suffering, but it's also not self-suffering. Right? So that's what I mean, like the messiness and the injustice in the world doesn't go away just because the mind is being open and intimate and clear. But what happens is the mind knows how to be intimate and responsive without uh, sort of being infected by the suffering that's being known and sort of passing it along, you know, that, that contagion. Like, oh, there's suffering here, so I should be tight. And because I'm tight, I expect everybody else to be tight. And on and on. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, Tom. I have a question. Um, and that's kind of a big statement for me. A lot of times I find myself um, with my little closet full of answers or closet full of who I am. Um, and I've, I'm quite bored with them, actually. And therefore, but I'm not asking those closet creatures, I'm not asking them any questions. And I, I mean, you know, I mean... Sometimes I do, but I mean, I think it's um, difficult to to go down a path of really questioning myself and others around. So w- how does that fit in, is my question, to getting closer to freedom and happiness and the like. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> and it's a good place to end tonight, too. Because it, the questions are important, but not, the, not so much the answers. Because questions open things up. You know, and there's so many different ways that wise teachers have sort of pointed to this. Yeah, certainty, it, there's a real danger in any kind of certainty. We should be very suspicious of certainty. And as you probably have heard me, Tom, and many others, the, one of the best definitions of delusion, which is ignorance or delusion is the problem. Like from the Buddhist point of view, ignorance is the only bad thing. And one of the best definitions of ignorance is thinking that you know. You know, thinking that you know the answer, then you're pretty, you can be pretty sure you're ignorant if you think you know. <laughs> because the answer is never something the mind knows in that sort of conceptual way. It's never something one knows. That's what we wake up to. We don't wake up to an answer. Like that's why we have a word in, in Buddhist practice. We call it Dharma. In fact, it's better if someone asks you, like, are you a Buddhist? It's better to say no, because there really aren't Buddhists, really. That's just, you know, something that arose in institutions after the time of the Buddha, wrongly, because they weren't good enough students of the Buddha. <laughs> really. Because it's not that we're Buddhists, we're people who are interested in the way it is. So we use the word dharma, but you don't have to use that Sanskrit word. Dhamma is the Pali word equivalent, dhamma or dharma. It just means the way it is. We're students of the way it is. That's what we are. That's what we do at Common Ground. We're students of the way it is. That's the common ground in Common Ground. Dhamma or dharma or the way it is. The way it is now, not like theoretically... This. And when we open to this, it's like questions can get us, can support the opening. Answers don't support the opening. They, because the tendency of the mind with any kind of answer is to want to hold on to it. And what we need are strategies, skillful strategies, that sort of take the mind to the edge so that we're more likely to sort of fall forward into our life, into the moment, just as it is. Out of the prisons of our fixed views or ideas about things. Thanks for the wonderful questions. And uh, maybe next time, thanks for raising your hand. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just appreciating a few seconds of silence. And most importantly, appreciating our teacher, which is our own experience of the heart, the mind and the body right here. Thanks for coming tonight, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.